So it's just after 6 p.m. and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker and welcome to another edition of Too Much Information. Uh, this week we have a very, very great show. We have uh, Annalie Newitz, who is the founding editor of the science website io9 and the author of the new book Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. Hey, Annalie, are you there? I am. Oh, that's great. We did it. We figured out the technology. <laughs> we managed to use Skype. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and hello to our government minders who are, are listening as well. But uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So this is a live program. Um, folks can call in and uh, talk to Annalie about how to survive the apocalypse. And the number here is 201-209-9368, or you can go online and visit the AccuPlaylist show page we have going up at WFMU.org. So, uh, Annalie, you pretty much fess up in the introduction to this book that there, and there's ample evidence for this in the book, that, but this uh, survival guide, it's rooted in a very deep fascination of yours with disaster, mass destruction and the apocalypse, not just hurricanes and earthquakes, but extinction-level disasters. And, and I just kind of want to start off by asking, where, where does this come from? You know, I think like a lot of people, I'm, you know, deeply interested in watching the world crushed by <laughs> some force beyond our control. And I mean, in my case, I really love giant monster movies. Uh, so, you know, the bigger the monster, the huger the crushing, the more it's like, picking up giant buildings and like eating them like they're corn cobs, the better it is for me. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think we all, you know, we grow up as little tiny people who are controlled by big giant people. And so there's a kind of natural urge to want to see big giant things torn down by even bigger, more giant uh -huh. things. Um, but, you know, as I grew older, it definitely matured into, you know, just liking to see, you know, your basic disaster movie. So it doesn't have to have a giant monster for me anymore. Yeah. But before this turned into uh, a book about survival, you know, you, as you mentioned in the introduction, it, it starts with disaster. And I'm wondering, you know, besides the, 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 the movies, I mean, there's, there's, there's a part of me that, you know, reading about the inevitability about some of this that makes me just want to to crawl under the bed but you know the monster movies are kind of fun they're exciting but was there just was there something else though that that really pulled you into looking at you know extinction level disasters well what i really wanted to do was convert my kind of you know enthusiasm for these fictional stories into a hard science look at the worst possible disaster that could ever happen to the planet and i didn't want to just look at you know, volcanoes or earthquakes, I wanted to find out what's the worst thing that could happen. And it turns out that mass extinction is that disaster. It's a slow moving disaster from the perspective of humans, because it's a disaster in which 75% of all species on the planet die out over a period of about a million years. So that's a huge number of extinctions. And it's a blink of an eye in geological time. So from a human perspective, it seems like a slow motion disaster. It's not like a volcano, mm. but it is, in fact, th this is the worst thing that can happen to the planet. And it's happened five times before. Yeah, you give names to this, like the Great Dime. But we'll come back to that. But <laughs> um, now I, I'm curious about, you know, where this turns for you. Can, I'm, you know, you tell us about being a kid watching the disaster movies. But w can you think yeah. back and give us what was the first instance of, of you finding something hopeful? Was there like a person that you met or a story that made you sort of re rethink this project, not just about disaster, but survival? Yeah, I mean... Certainly, it was in the process of researching this book because I really, I have to confess, I mean, I went into this book really just wanting to write the worst, most horrific disaster book that's ever been written. Yeah, I yeah. really wanted, I really felt like we were doomed. That, um, that was the title, right? The, first <laughs> yes, <laughs> title. the biggest, most horrific disaster. Yes. You are so, doomed. <laughs> so, um, but about... Um, you know, I'd say about a quarter of the way into my research after I had really talked to a number of geologists who are uh, one of the main groups who study these kinds of uh, extinction events. And I talked to a lot of environmental scientists and I'd been just immersing myself in the literature on mass extinction. I was 
I was reading about the worst mass extinction that ever happened, uh, which is about 250 million years ago at the end of a period called the Permian. And during this particular mass extinction, 95% of all species on the planet died off. So land animals, ocean animals, insects, everybody was dying. And there was one land animal who managed to survive this extinction kind of against all odds. And it was this kind, this creature called Lystrosaurus, yeah. who is a quite funny looking sort of, I, I would call him a pig lizard. Um, and, and it was about the size of a dog, uh, not, not a particularly badass creature. But this, this little creature managed to make it through using just a very few basic survival skills, one of which was its ability to tunnel underground, and another of which was its ability to just adapt to many, many, many new environments, just like people do. It could kind of travel anywhere uh, and settle down and really find a new ecological niche. And I thought, you know, if this little lizard pig creature could make it through the worst mass extinction, maybe I'm maybe I'm looking at this thing backwards. Maybe instead of focusing on the destruction, what's really interesting is what happens in the aftermath, what happens to the survivors, who the survivors are, and what it takes to survive. And that that really changed my perspective. I think identifying with, with the pig lizard, Lystrosaurus, made me um, see these events um, in a really different way. You know, when I was reading about the, the pig dog, Lystrosaurus, I, I couldn't help but think maybe, maybe he was just the, the cockroach of his time because he seemed like he inherits the earth. You, you, you tell us that, that, that there's evidence that this uh, pig dog kind of got to go everywhere. Yeah, pig lizard. Pig please. lizard, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I got that one way wrong. Um, uh um, yeah, I mean, at one point uh, in the early Triassic, which is the period after the Permian, it's estimated that 95% of all land animals were some version of Lystrosaurus. And this was on this was at a time in, in Earth's history when there was one mega continent called Pangaea. So you have to imagine this giant continent, you know, covered in um, in pig lizards, um, which were speciating. They were turning into many different species, and so. I just think, I mean, that to me is a more fascinating story than the story of how everything got wrecked. I, I just, I really, I, I'm interested in um, all different kinds of survivors. Yeah. And that, like I said, that was the moment when the book really took a turn for me. And I realized, you know, I really want to focus on the stories of the creatures and the people who make it through these events and what we can learn from them so that in the future, you know, we can be as awesome as pig lizards, maybe even more awesome, um, <laughs> and uh, and hopefully our species can survive. Yeah, but you do meet one scientist who says that you know one of the answers might be uh, why the the pig lizard does so well is just luck. It's true. It's very true, and that's I mean that's kind of. There is always a mystery element to survival. Not to say there's uh, anything wrong with luck. I mean, we humans, we like gambling. We like, <laughs> we like luck. Yeah, but it's true. It could be that um, no matter what we do, we are going to meet our doom. Um, I don't believe so. I think there's a lot of stuff that we can do, and there's a lot of evidence for the kinds of strategies that do work when you're facing a mass extinction or even when you're facing um, a, a disaster that happens in a shorter period of time. But um, but sure, we could get unlucky. You know, yeah. we could get uh, horribly unlucky. and Like and the other suck. 95% of the species. I mean, I don't want to like yeah. gloss over just how awesome some of this disaster extinction porn is in some of the first chapters. <laughs> it's kind of awesome. No, I don't want to gloss over it either because as I have already fully confessed, uh, you know, disaster porn is what is what sucked me in in the first place. So, um, yeah, I mean, w- the the disaster, the immediate disaster that, that wrecked Lystrosaurus's world, of course, was a supervolcano, which I think more people should be worried about supervolcanoes. Not oh, yeah. immediately, because there's... There, you made me worried. I got worried after reading that chapter. I think, I, you know, I mean, I, I want to reassure people that there are no supervolcanoes that are about to blow up anytime soon, as far as we know. So it's it's not likely to happen in our lifetime. But... Hmm. If you do like to worry about disasters, the thing about uh, supervolcanoes is that they don't just 
shoot lava into the environment. In fact, that's the least of your worries. They What they're doing is they're pumping toxins into the environment and ash. So they're kind of like a, a super industrial revolution. And that's what happened in the Permian is that this uh, volcano um, in the area that is now Siberia emitted so much carbon that mm. it caused uh, first probably a bit of an ice age and then long-term an extreme greenhouse climate and extreme ocean acidification. So it basically wrecked the planet with climate change. Yeah, and uh, the lizard lizard pig can, can, can survived it though. But let's talk about the dinosaur apocalypse then with an yeah. eye towards some of the species that do make it out. Yeah, you know, so you get to that one, you know, there's a lot of uh, competing theories that, you know, you got to look at and bring together um, in your research. But can you tell us about how they come together, just how bad it was? And w- so let's, let's talk about the survivors. Who, who were they and how did they make it out? So most people have heard uh, about the demise of most of the dinosaurs. 65 million years ago, an enormous asteroid about uh, five miles wide smashed into the planet. And that caused an enormous explosion. It actually punched a hole in the atmosphere. So a lot of the debris from the explosion actually was thrown back out into space. Okay, that's how big this sucker was. And as a result, you got basically nuclear winter. You had so many particles in the upper atmosphere that it created a highly reflective cloud that wrapped around the planet. Also, meanwhile, in totally unrelated news, there was a super volcano going off in India, yeah. by the way. So Terrible so we, coincidence. You know, they, they tried to schedule them a, a few years <laughs> apart, but it just didn't work um, out. Yeah, so now it looks like sort of the one-two punch of a super volcano and a massive asteroid um, hit probably ushered in again first you have this kind of cooling period and then you get an extreme greenhouse and at the time that this happened the dinosaurs were living in basically a lush tropical paradise that was what dinosaurs preferred was a warm world there were no ice caps uh, and they needed a lot of vegetation to survive they're big guys big um, guys and gals uh, that were wandering around just eating a lot of stuff and so over time as the climate changed a lot of the vegetation the habitats where it was thriving changed and so it became very difficult for animals to find food because a lot of their food sources were dying out because the conditions that they were used Mm. to those tropical conditions were changing and so basically when the dinosaurs died out, it wasn't an instantaneous like fireball. It was actually a very long, slow, painful series of famines where different creatures' food sources dried up. And then as those creatures died out, the creatures that fed on them also died out. So you'd sort of have herbivores die off when their grasses died. Then you'd have predators dying off when their herbivores died. So nobody got to eat for a really long time. And that was basically what what killed off the dinosaurs was this, this slow starvation. And of course, some dinosaurs did survive. Uh, birds today are, are you know, the a direct result of small dinosaurs, small winged dinosaurs who survived. So it's not true that all the dinosaurs yeah. died out. Um, so how did they make it? Uh, well, partly they made it the same way that these little fluffy mouse-like or shrew-like creatures made it. Those are our ancestors, by the way, little fluffy shrews, uh, some of the first mammals. Partly they made it by being small. Um, There's nothing like being small during a time of famine because you don't need as much sustenance. But also uh, they survived by diversifying into these new environments, which Mm. were ultimately cooler than cooler temperature, not like cooler, like, dude, more awesome in the wake of the dinosaurs. Um, But just temperatures were were dropping in the wake of this greenhouse event, which had changed everything, but slowly temperatures did drop. And the world that we live in now would have been completely hostile for dinosaurs. But these little fluffy guys and these small bodied dinosaurs that ultimately evolved into birds were able to find new ecological niches and then diversify and speciate, uh, evolve into many different species. And so this is the world that mammals love, uh, slightly cooler than, than dinosaur world uh, with ice at the poles. 
And we've managed to, as mammals, um, humans have managed to really get into almost every ecological niche on the planet. We're really good at that. Yes. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're the inheritors of uh, survival species, basically, it, survivor species. But barely. I mean, you, I learned that the humans, you know, we almost didn't make it. And, and I'm wondering if you could talk <laughs> about there at that moment, you know, when we're sort of dealing with our own uh, disaster uh, conditions, what happened? How did we make it? And what sort of points back to the uh, Lystrosaurus and the fluffy shrew? I mean, are there any connections there? Yeah, I think there are. I mean, one of the things that humans are have been really good at and one of the ways that we've made it through many different disasters in our own evolution is that like Lystrosaurus, like those little fluffy shrews, we are very adaptable. We, as a species, it seems as if, just looking back at human evolution, that one of the main skills that we have is walking into new environments. And I mean literally walking, because of course walking is one of the great evolutionary developments for humans. And it you know, allowed, allowed us to get into new places more quickly. And slowly over time, we also learned to adapt to new environments that we'd walked into, like Lystrosaurus. But what we have that Say that as far as we know, what we have that Lystrosaurus didn't have is we actually ended up developing language and culture. And that makes our, adapt, our abilities to adapt much more um, uh, vital. It makes it much easier for us to adapt because we can actually explain to each other how to adapt to a new environment. We don't have to, each time we encounter a new environment, say, ooh, over here are the poisonous things, and over here are the tasty things, and this is where to hang a hammock. Uh oh. We lost you there. Let's see if she comes back. Hello? Annalie? Hmm. One second. Technical difficulties here. Hello? Yes. Annalie, we lost, we lost you. I know. My computer crashed. Oh. <laughs> um, so it is rebooting right now. Um, All I'm right. really sorry. It's okay. We can talk. You were telling us about the humans adapting, and we're going to adapt to the phone. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We're adapting. This is an example of humans adapting to changed circumstances. Yeah. And um, when things are rough, when, when computers crash, we, we come up with a way to get around it. So, um, so here's a question: When our, when the humans met the, our cousins, the Neanderthals, what did they? What did we have that they didn't have? That they, or did we just have better adapt, adapt, better ways of dealing with adapting? I think. I mean, that's a really interesting question, and actually, um, what there's actually evidence now that when humans met Neanderthals, that it was actually a very complicated situation where. Partly, they were pushing Neanderthals out of territories that the Neanderthals had lived in for, you know, thousands of years. But now we know that Neanderthals interbred with uh, early humans and were actually forming communities with them and having children with them. And so it looks also as if one of the things that humans were good at was assimilating other human groups. And so it's possible that what we did maybe 
wasn't better than the Neanderthals, maybe what we did was we joined up with the Neanderthals and we actually incorporated Neanderthal culture and knowledge into early human culture and knowledge. There's plenty of evidence that Neanderthals were leading a much more impoverished life than Homo sapiens when Homo sapiens came out of Africa and eventually uh, met up with Neanderthals in Europe. Um, And partly that was because Neanderthals were just living in very small communities. There was uh, very little food available for them. But as soon as they met up with Homo sapiens, there's tons of evidence that almost immediately Neanderthals started living in the same caves as Homo sapiens, uh, using the same tools as Homo sapiens. So it really kind of has the character of an assimilation scenario as opposed to, I think, the traditional view of, of Homo sapiens meeting Neanderthals is that we just killed them all. Uh, but clearly we didn't because we are, in fact, many people of European descent, including me and you, are actually part Neanderthal. Hmm. So um, we are <laughs> the product of hybridization as opposed to genocide in this case. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, I don't know, I think that's a bit of a hopeful sign for humans that we're, yeah. that we're so good at, at combining resources with other groups. But, you know, it, it, you could say that if, if someone a hundred, you know, a couple hundred millions from now are looking at some apartments in, say, the 20th century, you might think like, oh, these, these groups were living together and they have these different backgrounds and bone structure. But it could have been like that was like the maid's quarters. It could have been working for the Homo sapiens. <laughs> Yeah, no, you were, it could have been, you know, this was a this this was the maid's room between landlord and tenant and we're misreading it as like a happy fun time. Um, I think that's I think that that's probably true. I think that the meeting between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals was occasionally peaceful, occasionally coercive, uh, but clearly a lot more complicated than mm. we had realized. Um, it was probably a patchwork quilt of different kinds of relationships. But we do know for sure that it resulted in um, humans and Neanderthals uh, having children together. Mm. So there was some uh, some hybridization, regardless of whether it was coercive or not. So let's try to get some uh, listeners involved here. Our guest today on Too Much Information is Annalie Newitz, who is the founding editor of the science website io9 and the author of the new book, Scatter, Adapt, and Remember How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction. And you can call in and ask Annalie for her advice on how you can survive the apocalypse <laughs> of your nightmare. The number here is 201-209-9368, or you can go online at the AccuPlaylist page at WFMU.org, and we can take some of your calls. But uh, I want to move on towards um, the, the, the present now, um, because the way you write about plagues and famines seem to suggest that there may be, even in a few decades' time, like a sequel to The Great Dying, The Great Dying 2, Humanity Gets It in the Face. And it seems really <laughs> difficult. It seems kind of impossible that we're going to survive all of this. Or how the hell are um, we going to survive all of this? <laughs> well, so first of all, um, I should say that, remember, the thing that created the great dying was not just one species dying out entirely, but that was 95% of all species dying out. So again, there's always survivors. And my bet is that humans... Even if we do go through a mass extinction, which it it looks very much like we may, um, we will probably wind up as a survivor species. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to deal with things like famines and plagues, which often go together, by the way, um, along the way. Um, And so I think, you know, we certainly are in our contemporary world coming up with better ways of dealing with famine and better ways of dealing with pandemics. in a, in a lot of different areas. But at the same time, if we do keep heading in the direction of a mass extinction, these kinds of events are inevitable. And so part of what we need to be doing, I think, is really thinking concretely about how we're going to prevent these kinds of famines mm-hmm. and pandemics from, from hitting humans. Um, and that needs to be built into the way we plan our cities, the way we plan our farms, the way we plan states, um, and I think right now we're kind of at the cusp of doing that. Um, but I, I think that we're still at a point where if you asked most people in a city, what would you do if there was a pandemic breaking out? They have no idea. And so there's really a failure of communication between 
public officials who do have a very concrete idea of what we would do, and there's plans in place, and citizens who are the ones who are going to be affected by those plans. So I really think there needs to be a lot better communication to the public about how to deal with these very, very likely disasters. And maybe we need to have drills, you know, like safety drills. Yeah, but I mean, this gets to, for me, you know, at the heart of the issue that some of the responses seem to be really focused on reactive approaches. And, you know, perhaps as as you were talking about preventative measures, sort of proactive, that still seems like we're kind of far from, from getting there. I mean, you visit a lot of disaster uh, campuses, you know, places where they're simulating earthquakes, tornadoes, fires, crashes, and and it seems that a lot of this is geared towards, you know, not just you know how to react to uh, to better plan uh, rescue and reaction, but also to go all the way and redesign cities. But it doesn't seem like we're making it that far yet. Is that fair to say? Um, you know, I think it really depends on the time scale that you're thinking of. Because if you certainly if you look at things from the human time scale, which I don't do very much in this book because I'm really interested in species and geological time, um, yeah, things don't happen as fast as we would like. We learn about a new kind of threat, like say pandemic, and we don't figure out a solution to it in a human lifetime. Maybe we don't even figure out a solution to it in two or three human lifetimes. But we are actually working on these problems. And one of, I mean, one of the examples I like to give is with climate change, which is, of course, one of the big disasters that we're confronting right now. And people will say, well, we have, you know, there's no evidence that humans are going to do anything about this because we haven't done anything yet. Um, And the fact is that in the case of climate change, we only just figured out that we are affecting the climate. Some of us. uh, uh, 40 years. Some of us have figured this out. I mean, unfortunately. I'm saying that we only made this discovery as humans. Um, Some of us discovered this only within the last like 40 or 50 years. But in the time since some of those humans discovered that we're perturbing the carbon cycle and that we're changing the planet's climate, um, this has become a global political issue. That's really, really fast for a species to notice that it's changing the environment and try to do something about it, even if all they're trying to do about it is just figure out who's going to figure out how, what to do about it. It's, a, it's not going to be, I mean, these are the kinds of disasters that will haunt our species for thousands of years, things like famines and pandemics also, and they're not things that we're going to be able to fix instantaneously. We're going to fix them you know, over many years and possibly Uh over many human lifetimes. But just because we can't fix them in one lifetime doesn't mean that we're not on a pathway toward fixing them. And, you know, I can't guarantee what the future will hold. None of us can. But we can look back at our track record and see, you know, over time, gradually humans do change and our cities change and our civilizations change and our ways of dealing with problems do change. And that doesn't mean we don't still have war and we don't still have conflict, but it just means that we actually, I think we're heading in a good direction just by making something like global warming or pandemic or famine into political issues, into issues we're focusing on. So... Well, I, I guess if you bring up the issue of you know cities design, infrastructure design, you talk about mm-hmm. how there are some of the scientists and engineers you talk to that would love to sort of retrofit some of some some of these solutions would mean that you know uh, Western cities would have to be sort of retrofitted, and that's just not possible politically. That's a big challenge. Whereas in India and yeah. China, some of these cities are so new they're having fantastic success. It's sort of, you know, designing for the future, designing to solve some of these issues. And again, that seems like luck <laughs> in a way. There I mean, is it, a bit it's of, awesome. There is a bit of but like, where's luck, the political, yes. where's the political sort of, uh, so, you know, I, I, I wouldn't exactly say someone is sort of thinking about, you know, designing for the future. It's just that there's a, there's a sort of a clean slate there. I mean, we could do that if we wanted to really, you know, work harder at it here in the West, too. I mean, but there's also, of course, money involved as well. Like, it, it costs money to do all these kinds of retrofits. But I think that we are heading in that direction. I think cities are being retrofitted. It's not just luck, because the reason why you get 
uh, a city that's more likely to be carbon neutral in China or India is because people there, engineers there, have learned from contemporary science how to do environmental engineering that's less damaging and more sustainable. And that's, you know, that is, again, part of a global effort. You know, a lot of the researchers in in those countries are working with researchers over here and in Europe. And, um, you know, I think, again, yeah, the future is going to be unevenly distributed, as William Gibson once said. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. I guess it's it's always patchwork. Sure, sure, sure. But there's just there, there seems something like really I don't, I don't want to say American, but I, I mean I'm, I'm just thinking of like Bruce Willis, like you know, in a rocket <laughs> yeah. heading towards an asteroid. Like there seems like we're really into reactive approach, like solving this once we see the problem. You know, in other words, we're going mm-hmm. to try. You know, once the pandemic started, then we'll get out there and we'll find a way to fix it. And that's just not gonna work. As you point out nope. time and time again. And, and and don't you think, Yeah, I mean, at least in the movies, we see that all of our solutions are sort of last minute reactive solutions. You know, I mean, I don't think all of them are because, again, it's you good can storytelling. look at cities that are that are sort of that are trying to design to be uh, less susceptible to falling when they shake in an earthquake. Um, and I think. You know, but I do think, yeah, especially with stuff like pandemics and famines, we are incredibly reactive. And it's what's going to have to happen, not have to happen, but what may happen is that you're going to have a couple really huge disasters that are going to crash the population in certain parts mm. of the world. And I hope that we don't have to, to live through that in order to learn a lesson about planning for the future better. Um, but, you know, certainly... In, historically, in Europe, when uh, the bubonic plague hit, uh, you know, you saw many areas where the population fell by 50%. And it was only in the wake of that that there were a lot of social yeah. changes that, you know, prevented people from having such devastating effects. You know, but, oh, go ahead. I, I really like, you know, learning about some of the things, you know, you were studying SARS and the bird flu, you know, very, very recent, you know, public health scares or sort of exercises. And, and did that give you the sense that, wow, maybe we, we do have sort of a global surveillance system in place that might make this work? Or, or I no? Think so. I mean, yeah, I, I, think, I think we're on the path to having that. I mean, we do have global health surveillance, which just means basically that uh, local uh, health agencies communicate with, uh, lar- you know, with the CDC and communicate with uh, the World Health-, health Organization about pandemic strains that they see emerging in their regions. So there is global coordination uh, of information about any kind of pandemic strain that looks like it's emerging. And I mean, if you look at a movie like Contagion, which for all its flaws and for its incredibly problematic representation of blogging um, actually does give you a good sense of how it gives a really good sense of how that bureaucracy would work, like how information would go up the chain through governments and uh, through international bodies, whether or not that infrastructure could prevent a pandemic that has already started. We don't know because Uh, we haven't had a strain that was deadly enough to really cause such a pandemic, you know, since, basically 1918 and the whole infrastructure has changed since 1918 and the Spanish flu. So we haven't had a chance to test it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many fascinating uh, little twists and turns to this, especially the pandemic story that I learned from, from your book, but you know, it just seems like we're focused on like big stores of vaccines available to people, but you point out time and time again, that there are political issues that if we don't solve, for example, children, with vaccines, you know, the, 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 if we don't give the vaccines to poor children, then it doesn't matter how many uh, uh, the gated community folks have stores of vaccines available. It's true. One of the things that I think is fantastically interesting that's emerged from um, basically epidemiological modeling, which we can do really well now. We have great uh, computer simulations that can show how disease is likely to spread. <clears throat> Basically, if you can vaccinate children in developing countries, you can prevent the spread of a pandemic. It, it, just, it allows you to prevent it in a way that is kind of unprecedented. There's certain populations 
children being the biggest population uh, that spread disease really quickly. Anyone who's ever known a child or had a child is pretty aware of how disease-ridden they are. And um, so vaccinating a child is a way of preventing the disease from jumping to many more people. But vaccinating a child in a vulnerable region, like in the developing world, is even more likely to prevent the spread of of your Mm. contagious um, disease. So there are, we do have models of pandemics, and we do have models of how to stop them in their tracks. But as you point out, there's the issue of, well, could we really have a global effort where we went out and did that? And given how much resistance there is to vaccination in the United States, sometimes I really do just kind of want to (laughs) <laughs> my own head. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that movie ends. I didn't see it. I don't know if Bruce Willis shows up in a rocket full of vaccines, but um, and and maybe I'm being too <laughs> hard. Have to be antivirals at that point. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm being too hard on sci-fi. A, a lot of the, uh, listeners here will will know you from uh, uh, the work you do. You write eloquently and often on sci-fi at IO9, and in the book you talk a lot about. Uh, the role of speculative fiction, uh, not just for you, but some of the stories and what they have to offer us. And as much as, you know, a Federation for Space Exploration sounds possible and exciting, there are many more dark visions that come from speculative fiction that, to me, uh, I guess seem more probable. You even meet a scientist who tells you flat out that she sees humans becoming the Morlocks of the time machine in the future. (laughs) Right? Who is that? (laughs) That was Daisy Ginsburg. She's actually, she's a designer who works with synthetic biologists. Um, Amazing. So she's done a lot, a lot of research on where synthetic biology might lead us in the future. And she does have a pretty dim view. She thinks we're going to pollute the universe um, eventually. Once we leave the planet, we're just going to keep <laughs> polluting everywhere we go. Um, but no, can we talk about sci-fi here? Because this, you know, you you talk about yeah. Octavia Butler, for example. I haven't read the Lilith books you bring up, but I have read the uh, talent, the parable ones, and those made me again crawl under the bed. Uh, very, very dark, very, very dark visions, and very seemingly plausible. But I, I'm curious, you know, some of the stories that we're getting from science fiction, speculative fiction, that lead to possible solutions for how we can survive. One of the things that I think is really useful about Octavia Butler's writing, uh, particularly in some of the works where she looks at the future of human evolution, which is a big theme for her, is that she doesn't have this vision that's sort of Star Trek-like, where humans kind of start in one place and we kind of magically just keep becoming progressively more civilized until we meet the Vulcans. Um, although there is this whole collapse of civilization in the Star Trek narrative, but generally it's sort of depicted as this bright line from from the present to the future. And in Octavia Butler's work, there's never this bright, obvious path. Uh, Humans, um, for example, in her trilogy, Lilith's Brood, humans are kind of wrecking the planet with nukes, and aliens come along and rescue the surviving humans and say, all right, we're going to rescue you. We're going to integrate you into our culture, which is peaceful, non-hierarchical. We never pollute anything because all of our technology is biological. So we're total hardcore environmentalists. Our ship is alive. You know, everything in our world is is living. Um, But if you want to become part of our culture, I'm afraid we're going to have to breed with you and you're going to become part of our genetic legacy. Um, You're going to, you know, human DNA is, is crucial to their evolution. And so there's, it's clear that this is going partly going to be a good thing for humans, that we are going to join a civilization that is less destructive. But at the same time, we're not going to be human anymore. We're going to evolve into these human-alien hybrid creatures. And so there's going to be this loss. And there's also a lot of questions raised about, well, are these really benevolent aliens after all, if they're not offering us a choice about this whole breeding thing? Um, and, you know, even though there's some good things about them, there's some bad things about them. And she never, Octavia Butler never gives us easy answers. She does show how taking this pathway, joining with these aliens, having, um, you know, joining our genetic uh, progeny with theirs um, is probably a good thing. Mm-hmm. It means we're going to get to go to the stars and become less warlike. But 
as I said, we're going to lose a part of ourselves. And I think that that's a useful way of thinking about the future because so much futuristic thinking imagines that the humans of the future will be exactly like us today, but with like really awesome toasters and like super great spaceships. Like, but humans will be exactly the same. And that's just not true. That's not how evolution works. Um, probably we're not going to breed with tentacled aliens like in an Octavia Butler story, but we are going to keep evolving. Yeah. And so the humans who, <clears throat> you know, who, the humans who ultimately are on the planet in thousands of years or maybe living in space in thousands of years are not going to be the way we are today. And we can't assume that and we have to embrace the possibility that these changes to humanity are going to be very radical and keep in mind that our values now may make no sense to humans of the sure, future. Sure. And, to, and to not think that that's a terrible thing. Like, that's a win <laughs> to me. Like, if humans can continue, even if we evolve into alien creatures, even if we evolve into something that looks like an octopus, if, if they're still from the human line, I think that is survival. And I think that's just, that's not a message you hear very often in futurist thinking or science fiction, but I think it's actually profoundly true and very important. Earl, you, you say that she has sort of a commitment to, ch or like a philosophical commitment to change that's almost like religion. And, and you seem to, yeah. to, to see that that sort of as a religion is one that might, you know, benefit uh, humans who hope to survive in the future. Yeah, in her, in her uh, two books, uh, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talent, uh, her, her protagonist invents a religion, which actually becomes a pretty successful religion, and the religion's main credo is God is change. And the thing I love about that is that it could be, it could be just a classic Judeo-Christian formulation where you imagine that your mm. monotheistic leader is committed to change. So it's a, it's a radical, progressive, reformist god. Um, or it could just be a way of talking about evolution. Yeah. Um, instead of, you know, it's a way of saying God is change, and if change is evolution, then, you know, God is evolution, and, all, you know, all of our kind of the meaning of our lives comes from that evolutionary process. And so I just think that that's such a brilliant um, formulation. I, again, I think that that's a, a fantastic uh, philosophical framework uh, for humans moving forward. Yeah, yeah, you know, we've got about 10 minutes left, and I, I'm hoping maybe we'll find someone from listener land who can call in uh, uh, wanting to know how, for some advice on how their descendants can survive in the future, or maybe they're just going to go out uh, with a party as the asteroid is being announced that it's heading our way. The number is 201-209-9368. I'm not waiting for Bruce Willis. Or you can go online at the AccuPlaylist page at wfmu.org. You know, Troy from Brooklyn wrote in to say that he just thinks that there's just too many people on the planet. And I don't, I don't know exactly what he means. Like maybe that we'll survive because we have enough of us. Or uh, if that's uh, uh, perhaps, uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what that means. But I don't know if uh, having too many people really solves an asteroid or a pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it only, I mean, it, it does turn out that having a huge population the way we do does make us uh, very likely to survive a huge disaster because even if you take out a lot of us, there's going to be some of us left. Mm. Um, and because we're, we're all over the planet. So if you smash something into one side of the planet, well, there's still all the people on the other side of the planet. Um, so that actually living at a high population size does, yeah. uh, give us some benefits, although it also is not um, always great for the environment. You know, and let's talk about memory and stories, you know, not just science fiction stories, though, because stories are, are a key uh, a component to, to the story here. You talk about uh, stories in the Jewish people uh, that have kept, stories that they've kept alive over the centuries, and how the diaspora may be more than wandering far from home, but actual, actually rather a path to survival. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, interesting, I guess you could say, case studies I have in the book of survivors, um, you know, I, of course, I talk about Lystrosaurus, but then I also talk about human survivors. And so uh, the Jewish people are a great example of a group that has survived a lot of tribulations, but 
Uh, in addition, there's a lot of records um, about the path they took to survive. So there's ways of kind of verifying what happened historically. Um, and now there's ways of verifying genetically, um, you know, which kind of which groups of people can actually trace their ancestry back to the diaspora from um, Rome, for example. Uh-huh. Um, so the story of Exodus, which is central to uh, sort of Jewish philosophy and religion, it, you know, it comes from the Bible and it's about how the Jews fled from uh, oppression in Egypt to a new homeland. Um, and there's no historical basis for the story, but um, the story itself has become part of the Jewish tradition of survival, that whenever there's tough times, generally, um, what Jews have done is scatter in a diaspora and adapt to new environments, go to new places, um, you know, in the wake of being kicked out of Rome about 2,000 years ago, but also in the wake of um, the Inquisition and in the 20th century, uh, the German Holocaust, you know, all of these caused great diasporas of Jewish people. And one of the things that I actually thought was kind of interesting about the Exodus story is that it ends, if you read the story in the Bible, not sort of watching the Charlton Heston movie, um, it ends with the Jews in the desert. So they've fled from oppression and they're like, okay, great. You know, we got away from the Pharaoh and that really sucked. And now we're in the desert. We're looking for a new home and they're looking to find a place to adapt to and live in. But the story ends before they get there. Yeah. And actually, God is kind of, he's always, he's kind of mean in the Old Testament. So God is like, sorry, you guys, you're not going to make it, but your kids will make it to this <laughs> promised land. And so they have to, that group of people who fled have to live with the fact that they will personally never see a future where things get better. And I, I think that that's a really, an interesting way of structuring the story. Yeah. Hey, Anna, we have... We- in light of... We have someone wanting to know about Exodus and Diaspora in space. I think that Nick, are you there? Yes, I am. <laughs> hey, Nick. All right, let's talk about space. Well, I mean, no, it's just continuing on. I'm sorry, I just, we've, we've only got about five minutes, and I just see we've got a lot of calls now. Um, but uh, hey, is this Nick? Yes. Hey, Nick, so what do you, what do you want to ask here about survival? I was just wondering, um, most of the conversation I've heard is about, you know, life persevering on Earth, and he gets lucky and finds another place to go. But do you think that we've reached the point, because we are the first, you could say, that has the option to expand into space. Do you think that's the only way we could go, or do you think we could continue to thrive on on Earth as we have? Um, I think that's a great question. I actually spend um, quite a bit of time in the book talking about continuing this diaspora project that I was just describing in space. And I think that um, certainly in the near term, humans are going to have to uh, work on living on Earth sustainably and maintaining the environment here for our survival. But I think in the long term, humans are going to go into space. And I think it plays to our best strengths as a species. We're explorers. So definitely, I think, I just, the other thing I think is that space travel is going to look a lot different from what we think. It's not going to be, you know, rockets and stuff. Um, It's going to be uh, you know, very different technology from what we imagine. Actually, in her book, uh, uh, you you go from uh, the you know the Jewish diaspora as one of your case studies, but you do take us to space. This is where we actually end up in 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 the book. So I'm wondering. I, I interrupted you there, not only about the diaspora, but I'm wondering if you sort of you know why why we end up with space and sort of looking at you know story and 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 the the exploration is perhaps one of the, our greatest ways of surviving. Well, I think historically it served us well um, on this planet, and I think that as we continue to evolve, it's a um, it, it caters to what we seem to like to do as animals. Um, human animals like to explore, and I think that there's no reason that we shouldn't continue to try to live on other worlds and live in space, because I think as long as the, as long as we're exploring we are likely to um, continue along on a path of survival, not just because um, exploration is some kind of ethical good, because I don't, I think that's problematic to say that. But what I can say is Earth is really dangerous, even if we maintain the climate at a level that we find comfortable. Yeah. The planet can still be hit by an asteroid. There can still be another supervolcano. 
if we want to survive long term, we can't stay here. We've got to have other places to go. Thanks for that, Nick. We also have Mike uh, on the phone. Hey, Mike, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. What, what's, what do you okay. got? Uh, I was interested to see what uh, you all think about the concept of singularity and merging our uh, human uh, cerebral consciousness into like a virtual reality and if that could be a possibility for us to, an actual possibility for us to extend life in other realms. So once the planet's gone, we end up in the, in the computer. You, you, you take this on, don't you? I do. I do. I'm, I'm fairly skeptical about the singularity. I think that we are probably going to develop something like AI, but I don't think it's going to be ever a situation where humans are going to go live in a virtual world instead of exploring the real world that's out there. Um, that said, I do think that if we're going to explore the real world of outer space, we are absolutely going to have to modify our bodies, probably with technological implants probably with biological tweaks. And so we may indeed wind up merging with machines in some meaningful way, but I don't think it'll be that we will live as immortals in a virtual world because I think we're going to want to explore the real world, and mm -hmm. there's no reason why we shouldn't uh, with the right technology. Let's, let's take one more call here. Hello, WFMU? Hello? Hello? Yes? I'm sorry, I didn't know that was me. Uh, I was just calling. What's your I name? I heard the show in my car, so what, I apologize. What? I may have missed some of the broadcast, but I work as an environmentalist, and I'm interested in anthropology, so I was sort of piqued. Um, I'm just wondering if the guest has a, uh, a specific theory on how she thinks the human race will sort of fall. Hmm. <laughs> well, she's got. Yeah, I guess you've got a lot in 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 the book, but uh, it's more. I guess since we've got one last question, uh, one last minute here. Thanks for that, uh, caller. But uh, maybe you want to come back and flip it, Annalie, to survival. One last, uh, the most hopeful survival uh, tactic that you think that uh, you we, sh we should come away with from this book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that to me, the most hopeful survival tactic is for humans to continue exploring and continue trying to make, first make Earth safer for us and for our ecosystems. So first exploring ways that we can uh, intervene in, in the climate in a positive way so that we are actually transforming the climate to be more comfortable for, for us and our environment. Um, but then in the long term, I think, yeah, um, scattering and exploring is really the most, um, the best survival option. And of course, always evolving along the way, not mm. trying to prevent evolution, but trying to embrace change and uh, evolve to, um, to you know, fit into new environments. And that that's part of what we're good at is learning how to fit into new worlds that we didn't even know existed, maybe. Uh -huh. So that, to me, seems very hopeful. Anyway, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. We made yeah, it with so the, the technical technical difficulties and all, but uh, the uh, I just want to thank you again. Uh, <laughs> you survived. Yes, <laughs> Annalise's book is called <laughs> "Scatter, Adapt, and Remember: How Humans Will Survive a Mass Extinction," and it's in the bookstores and on the internet now. So thanks again, Annalise. All right, bye. bye. So you can find uh, the whole conversation. On the Accu playlist, uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, you can find uh, all of the archives at WFMU.org. And if you're looking for some of the old TMI regulars, you can find them on my other podcast, which is called The Theory of Everything. All of them are there. Chris, Tim, that's at toe.prx.org. So thanks again to Andrea Salenzi for helping me today, too. And stay tuned for Nardwar.
listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there, the Invictus with The Hump. Today on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show, an interview with, from Los Angeles, California, Heim. To prepare you for Heim, thought I'd play you a bunch of tunes and gonna begin with, right here, something relatively brand new from the amazing Dirty Water record label. We're gonna hear Sir Ball Diddley's band Legs and their tune Gotta Eat. Yes, Sir Ball Diddley's been in many, many bands and this is one of his combos, Legs, and we're gonna hear, as I mentioned, Gotta Eat, and then a whole bunch of other tunes, and then an interview with with Heim on the Nardwar, the human serviette radio show on the station known as WFMU. (laughs) 